All right, I'm glad that you all are here. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to press on, so let me pray for us. Lord God, we rejoice to call you our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you call us your beloved children. We thank you that we have that relationship because of what Christ has done for us. And we thank you that you gave to your people this precious thing, the church. I pray that as we continue to study it this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged and we would come to love you and trust you more through the time that we spend looking at church history. In Christ's name, amen. So one thing that we didn't go into too much detail was Arianism. And Arianism is on that uh, Christology chart. In short, it denies that Christ is eternally existent, part of the Trinity, the Godhead. And uh, it dates to like the early 300s and became a major, major issue for the church. Really, the Nicene Creed kind of comes out of uh, the struggle against Arianism. And I think we mentioned last week that modern-day Arians would be, uh, those who follow Arianism modern-day would be like Jehovah's Witnesses or um, uh, Mormons as well. So the, the phrase that is attached to Arianism is, there was a time when Christ was not. Um, so a lot of times if you um, are talking with one of these modern day cults, they'll take you to Colossians 1. If we want to look at that real quick. It says in starting in verse 15, he speaking of Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So they'll take you there and they'll go, look, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Um, how would you respond to that? John 1. In the beginning was the word, that part. The word was with God, the word was God. Okay, yeah, absolutely, right? Like, we have to take all of what Scripture teaches about a topic. We can't cherry-pick certain verses. We have to figure out a way to synthesize two verses that might appear to be saying different things, right? And there is, because there's no contradictions in Scripture, so there is a way to synthesize those. So that's excellent. Yeah, were you going to add something else? Yeah, I would also say that Jesus in the flesh, yes, did not always exist. He was born of a man at a certain point. He came down to tabernacle at a certain point in history. So you're partly right. That that's also good, right? Jesus in the flesh has not eternally existed. He did enter into history at a certain point in time. That's good. I think one of the things that I would say about this passage in, in Colossians 1 in particular is that... Um, Paul has the idea of recreation in mind. That when he's talking about creation here, he's not talking about Genesis creation. He's talking about the new man, new heavens, new earth, kingdom of God type creation. And Jesus was the first to enter into that to create a way for us. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. So, um, you know, that, that's one of the verses that they would use, and we should be prepared to have some kind of response to that. Um, and, and the reason I would say that, that that particular response is because he goes on to say, um, in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Um, so I think that's why Paul kind of has recreation in mind. Um, you, are you saying that verse 15 and 16 in Colossians is about recreation and not creation? 
I'm saying I think that the firstborn of all creation there, not I wouldn't say verse 16. Verse 16 is clearly about creation. Okay. Well, then it would be both. I mean, you could take the Jehovah's Witnesses there too and say Jesus created all things from the beginning. Yes, okay. exactly. Totally. So I, I, I think you do see both of those there. Absolutely. So I didn't, if you're looking at your notes, point D here, asceticism, I didn't know a great place to like fit this into the, the notes. So it's a little bit of like a detour, but I wanted to cover it. One of the things that happened as, as um, Christianity became a little bit more widely accepted towards the end of this period that we're looking at, uh, the early 300s, um, is that you have this movement towards asceticism, which is the denial of stuff, pleasure, food, um, material things. And uh, what, what, you happened, what happened was sort of the beginning of the monastic movement where people moved out of communities and went to live isolated lives in the desert. So you have like the church fathers, you also have this term, the desert fathers. And this was really like an embracing of the radical way of Jesus that was meant to be super countercultural, um, as opposed to as Christianity kind of became more widespread within the Roman Empire and began to sort of meld with the cultural values of Rome. Uh, so we'll get into that a little bit more in the next section in particular. And then we covered some of the creeds last week. This is an early condensing of the basic Christian story, message, and doctrine to a simple narrative summary. Uh, the Apostles' Creed in particular is one that most people are pretty familiar with that dates to the second century. Anybody know why it's called the Apostles' Creed if they didn't write it? Because it, it, it carries with it like the apostolic message of Christianity. So it's not the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles wrote it. It's the essence of the apostolic teaching. And a lot of it was a response to the claims of Gnosticism, which we covered last uh, week. So moving on to point six then, persecution. I just want to cover a couple of, um, of the emperors in particular that brought persecution against the church. So we've talked about this, but specifically Nero early on, you can see the dates there in your notes. He labeled Christians as criminals just because they had faith in Christ, just because they belonged to Christianity. And then Domitian uh, from 81 to 96, he was emperor during the writing of Revelation. There is some debate about that, right? You, uh, Rick, I think you think it was actually Nero, right? Okay. So there's some debate about that depending on when you date the writing of the book of Revelation. The point here is that Domitian was strongly opposed to Christianity. He persecuted Christians pretty heavily. Then you have Trajan uh, at the turn of the century there. He had a, an official governmental policy against Christians. They weren't sought out, but if Christians were brought before the local magistrates, they would be punished severely for that. A lot of times executed, um, fed to the lions. We get some of those stories. Um, I think we already looked at one in the story of Polycarp. Who's the other one? There's a woman from this time. I can't remember her name. Uh, Perpetua. Perpetua, thank you. Perpetua is another story similar to that. Then you have Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that name is familiar for a lot of people if you've seen the movie Gladiator. He's the, the emperor at the beginning of that movie. He persecuted Christians 
I think it says in your notes to stop floods, invasions, disease, etc. Why? Anybody? Anybody guess why he would think he would make a connection there? Yeah, exactly, because they believed that as Christianity spread, it was angering the traditional gods of Rome, and the traditional gods of Rome were punishing the society by bringing things like floods and famine, disease, etc. And so Marcus Aurelius, you know, he's really, in the beginning of Gladiator, painted as this really brilliant uh, lover of people and philosopher-type um, emperor but in reality he associated bad things with the anger of the gods which is kind of funny i think okay decius then um again you have to understand that the worship of the roman gods was seen as crucial to the perpetuation of rome and so decius really believed that if the roman empire was going to endure that they had to get back to their roots, their traditions, worshiping these Roman gods, and Christianity was a threat to that. And then Diocletian, um, when he failed to bring Christianity under, uh, sort of to its knees, to bring it to an end, he then sought a way to kind of tame it. Uh, this is kind of what's going on in China right now, where um, the Chinese government says you can have Christianity so long as it's the authorized version of the communist party in China, and if not, we'll bulldoze your church. It's pretty similar. Um, when he was unable to do that, then he did seek to kind of eradicate Christianity, uh, tearing down buildings and things like that. Okay, moving on to point seven, we have kind of a, a community controversy here <clears throat> that I think is worth looking at for a little bit. The early church really believed that baptism... Um, and I, I should say early church. We're talking like late second century, early third century, so 200s. The church really began to hold that if you get baptized, baptism brings remission of sins. It's what forgives you of your sins. And that after baptism, there really isn't a method for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so what happened was as persecution kind of died on between the years of 200 and 250, the discipline that the church had and the moral standards that it held people to began to kind of fade a little bit. And this is typical of Christianity. The less, um, sorry, the less pressure there is to, to conform, I'm not saying that right, the more difficult it is to walk the way of Jesus, the more committed people are interestingly. Um, and so as the, the standards began to become a little bit lax because there wasn't as much persecution, um, people began to engage in sin in ways the church hadn't really accepted previously. So you get this point where Callistus, who was the bishop of Rome, began to readmit penitent believers, particularly for some really egregious sins in the eyes of the early church. First, he began to forgive adulterers after conversion, right? So you claim to be a Christian, you've been baptized, you've been worshiping with the community, you go commit adultery. Uh, prior to this point, the church really said, there's not a place for you in our church community anymore. Callistus then began this program of forgiving those people and welcoming them back into the church community. Then he added to that those guilty of abortion. You wouldn't think of like abortion prior to the modern era, but it was an issue in Rome. 
and then later apostates, people who denied the faith and then later wanted to come back. So Callistus began a program of forgiving these people, welcoming them back into the fellowship of the church. Tertullian, in response to that, was absolutely enraged because he saw this as a, a way to really kind of water down the Christian faith and open the doors for insincere professions of faith and allow a really terrible precedent moving forward that Christianity was not a we surrender everything to Christ uh, way of living. So then towards the end of this period, 250 AD, Decius brought forward an imperial edict saying that if you didn't sacrifice to Rome, then you could be killed for... um, you could be executed for treason, rebellion against the state. And uh, this was a pretty heavy campaign against Christians so that many Christians ended up, and, and did we talk about this? The whole, um, uh, shoot, imperial edict? No, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? We did talk about this, where you could get the papers that said that you uh, sacrificed to Rome in a previous class. Yeah, in a previous class. I don't know why I can't remember what the title of that is. So what happened was many Christians either went and did sacrifice to Rome or they bribed officials to get these papers while many others didn't. And we talked about that and and were either um, executed or tortured or imprisoned for it. And uh, Some of these were bishops of Rome, bishops of Antioch, bishops of Jerusalem. This is really where the word martyr began to come around as witnesses. That's what that word means, is a witness. And uh, this term also confessors. These were people who, instead of bowing to Rome, persevered in their commitment to confess Christ, and they were called confessors. Um... And then the lapsed who bowed to Caesar and claimed that Caesar is Lord and essentially walked away from Jesus. So in 251, Decius was killed. He was replaced as emperor, and that campaign against Christians came to an end. And here's kind of where this plays in. The church really wrestled with this question, what do we do with apostates? If we believe that baptism can only happen once, and that happens for the forgiveness of sins... And now we have people who want to come back to the church after committing these really egregious um, rebellions against Christ. What do we do with these people? So in response to this, Cyprian proposed this idea of like a graded system of penance where based on the sin, here's what you had to do to sort of prove your sincerity to Christ again. It wasn't so much that this was a system of earning God's favor again, as it was a way to prove to the community that you were sincere about your recommitment to Christ after engaging in this sin of turning against Jesus. Um, So the the reason I want to touch on this is because this is how a couple of different Catholic doctrines came about. First of all, you have this idea that confessors, the people who were faithful to the end, the other Christians began to sort of celebrate their uh, dates of martyrdom or their birthdays as ways of sort of remembering and keeping in front of the church these people who were faithful witnesses to the end. 
that eventually developed into the Catholic system of praying to the saints, worshiping the saints, saint days. You know, that's why we have St. Patrick's Day and those sorts of things. So that's kind of where it came out of. And, and if you think about it, this is a beautiful thing, actually. Let's remember those who came before us who were faithful to the end. That's an honorable thing for us to do. In fact, Scripture says, um, you know, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, and I think that that refers specifically to the Old Testament, but there's no reason that it can't also, we can't draw from that the principle that we should look to those who came before us as faithful and remember what they did and follow their way. Uh, then this was then then what was added to this was this idea that these people actually by giving up their life to Christ began to earn in heaven extra merits because they were so faithful. Okay, so you can see how a good idea begins to go bad. This is where the Catholic idea of a treasury of merits in heaven comes from. So you can think of it like a giant um, treasure box. And when people are extra faithful to Christ, then their excess merits, their excess good works go into that box. And eventually this developed in the Reformation period into this idea where you could buy indulgences out of that box. So you could take the excess good works of these confessors who came before you, give money to the church, and out of that box then Rome or the Pope could pull good works and attribute them to you on your behalf to make up your deficit of good works. Um, you can see, again, sort of a good idea going bad. Should we praise these people? I mean, praise them. Should we be inspired by them for the way that they were faithful to the end? Absolutely. Did they do anything that is deserving of extra merit? No. If you give your life for Christ, you've just done what is required of a Christian when you are brought to the moment where will you bow to Caesar or will you bow to Christ, right? You've not done anything exceptional. You've only actually done what Jesus did and called you to do. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Uh, so this also led to a, a church split, a soft church split kind of in the early years of the church or early centuries of the church. And the question was around, could people be forgiven for these really major sins, things like adultery, murder, apostasy. And the split was defined by two different parties. The first one was a guy named Cornelius who believed that even grave sins like apostasy, murder, um, and uh, adultery could be forgiven through the sacrament of penance. You just had to do these things to show that you were sincere. And then you had another guy, Novitian, who, who claimed that the church had no power to forgive these major sins. Why would somebody even make a stance like that? Anybody? Christ is only, Christ's death is the only thing that can forgive sins. Okay, so Christ's death is the only thing that can forgive sins. I don't think they would have disagreed with that. I think what they're saying is the church's ability to acknowledge that you are forgiven for those sins. Um, I, I think that would be the case. I, I think probably the bigger bigger deal is this. They believed that if you truly had the Spirit of God in you, it was impossible to commit these grave sins. That from the reading of Scripture, they really held that once you enter the kingdom of God, your behavior is so radically fundamentally changed that something like apostasy or adultery or murder 
you know, in the eyes of God, of course, all sin is sin, but God does differentiate between sins that are more serious and less serious. We can see that from the law of the Old Testament. The punishment for, you know, stealing your neighbor's donkey is not the same as murdering your neighbor in cold blood, right? So there is some uh, level, even in the eyes of God, of sin being more grievous in certain aspects. And so I think that really at the heart of this was, if you profess Christ, it, sh it simply shouldn't be possible with the Spirit of God dwelling in you to commit sins like this, okay? Um, Would they get that uh, idea from where it says what you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven, like and having that power to forgive sins? Yeah, like absolutely. Um, we, I think the ancient mind view of uh, worldview or the ancient Christian view of the church is so different from ours. I mean, we, we feel very little commitment to the community of Christ as Christians uh, because we're very individualistic. You know, we do think through scripture and through the Holy Spirit, we have our own access to God. And those things are true. But um, they don't diminish the kind of communal life that Christianity really is. And I think that the early church felt that more, probably to some degree because they didn't have individual access to the scriptures. You really, if you wanted to get scriptures, you had, you had to do it in community. So that may be a part of it. Um, but yeah, I think things like... Um, that passage in Matthew 18 absolutely would inform their view of this, that you had to be restored to the church, not just restored to Christ. Um, and they have the keys to the church. Yes, the key, absolutely. And, and then in addition to this, you have, is it the Hebrews 6 passage, you know, that deals with like those who walk away, who once tasted the life of Christ and then, you know, bring shame upon the cross with the way that they live uh, after being part of that experience that there's no returning after that. It's impossible to renew them. Yeah, it's impossible to renew them. So I think the church took those passages really seriously. We have many more centuries of wrestling with these texts that kind of underlie our theology, but a lot of this was kind of new to them. Should we look at that real quick, Hebrews 6? This is a really intense passage. <clears throat> The question is, is, is the author of Hebrews describing a Christian here or not? Meaning someone who, somebody who is um, really, truly converted. If you go to Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the, uh, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So, <clears throat> um, you know, Novitian would read a passage like that and say, the church doesn't really have power 
to restore these people back to fellowship because the scriptures teach that they are out of fellowship with God. Um, whereas maybe Cornelius, and I'm just speculating, I've not read what he wrote, but maybe he would go to something like the parable of the prodigal son and say, look, you know, God welcomes back the wayward. Okay, let's just cover a couple lessons from this period. The first one is suffering is not always negative. Do you believe that? Like suffering sucks, but it's not always negative. God uses suffering for his kingdom purposes to refine us, to make the gospel look distinct in a world that needs to know that we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. Um, Job 2.10. Even if you don't know the reference, I hope you know this verse. Job says, shall we accept good from God and not also evil? Um, that's a really weighty idea. And of course, that is a rhetorical question. The answer is we should accept whatever God brings our way. Whatever he is doing, he's doing because he loves us and he's doing it for our good and for his glory. And we should have a lot of trust and confidence in that. So suffering is not always negative. The next one would be that it is really important for the church to be vigilant. Uh, to guard sound doctrine and to be thoughtful in the way that we are making sure that the church is theologically pure because the first couple centuries of the church in particular just rampant theological disagreements all over the place so I have in my notes in this period of church history as every period we must recognize how important it is to contend for the gospel and also for Orthodox Christianity. Although Jesus promises that he's going to keep, uh, he's going to build his church, he's really left it to the church to contend for the faith. And we need to understand that we are in a perilous position where the truth of the gospel is always going to be under assault. Um, one, because man hates it and rejects it. Two, because we have an enemy who would love to see the church end up a smoldering ruin. And then the third one would be, um, just a reminder, don't fall to discouragement when the odds look bad. I think both biblically we see this and also through church history, and I, I put it like this, God loves to stack the deck against his people. Why is that? The reason is so that when things work out and the story is told, everybody looks back and goes, that was clearly God, right? No power of man, no amount of resources, no amount of effort from a human perspective could have accomplished what took place there. You think of the story of Gideon, right? He, he's got an army and God whittles it down to a few hundred so that when the battle is won, Gideon and the Israelites will say this is clearly the work of God. And we see that through church history. Um, so that we might look back and say this was not by man's power but by God's might that these things were accomplished in the face of incredible odds. That's going to conclude section two. Any questions, thoughts, comments on that? 
So what I would like to do before we move to, uh, and I think we've got enough time to enter, to, to begin this this morning. Before we move to section three, what I really want to do is do what, what I would call an excursus or sort of a side, tr a, a rabbit trail and deal with the issue of the canon. So we're gonna probably take today and part of next week to go down this road. I find that there's a lot of questions about this, a lot of confusion about this, and I think it'll be helpful to understand how the church ended up with the text of scripture that it has. So will somebody, will you guys help me pass these out? And if you're super familiar with this material, it may be review, and I apologize for that. But I think it's important enough that we should go through it. Yeah, sorry, there's one, one page. I mean, not one page. There's one, the packet is the same. Thank you. Okay, so what is canon? Before peeking at the notes, anybody know what that word means? Yeah, it means a rule or a measuring rod. So this is the rule of the Christian faith, the canon that we have. It is the, the measuring rod which we use to determine what is truth. And, and we can also use it to compare and say, should this book belong in the canon or not? Um, so you could say that the canon are those books that passed the test of the measuring rod. Okay. Um, the definition that I have in your paper there under point A, it's specifically those books in the Jewish and Christian Bible considered to be scripture and therefore authoritative in matters of faith and doctrine. Why do we accept some books and not other books? So some interesting stuff here. After the fourth century, the church found itself with only 66 books. Now that may seem like a long time, but we're gonna get into the specifics of that process below. Only the 66 books. So the Bible that you're reading is the same Bible that Christians have been reading forever, um, since the early, early days. And 27 books of the New Testament, 39 of the Old Testament. This was ultimately finally settled, settled in the Third Council of Carthage in 397 AD. So how long has the church held specifically with like a doctrinal statement that this is the Bible since 397 AD? That's a long time. Um, super impressive, actually. So in 367, though, even before this council, we have uh, Ath Athanasius and we have a list of his. And he lists already. So even before the church council has come together and said, this is what we've determined, we have people indicating in their writing 27 New Testament books today, the scriptures of the church. Isn't that incredible? Um, those books he claims as canonical and authoritative. So here's the point. The council only affirmed what Christians already knew what Christians already believed, what they were already practicing. Um, that's really important. If you are interested in learning more about this kind of thing, I'll point you to um, sort of a new thing from Phoenix Seminary called the Text and Canon Institute. You could look it up at some point. They have a website, a blog. These are some of, some of the world's foremost scholars 
putting together information to help normal church people engage with these issues as they come up. So if you just Google text and canon institute, you'll find it. So let's talk first about the Old Testament canon. Uh, the specific details on how the Old Testament canon was selected aren't really known to us. How did the Jews end up with the books that they did in their scriptures? But it uh, clearly had to do with the fact that these books were authoritative for God's people. They were used in worship and for the spiritual life of God's people, um, for the nation as a whole in worshiping Yahweh. And what's really fascinating is Jesus assumes the Old Testament canon. When you get to a verse like Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus says, the scriptures say. That is an authoritative statement. Jesus knows that when he uses that phrase, the Jews will know specifically the works that he's talking about and that it is their responsibility to consider them in their lives as God's word. That's really incredible. Um, so we don't have like a pre-Jesus time council that determined what the Old Testament books were, but there's clearly a canon in place there by the time Jesus is walking and dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Jews obviously didn't call their Old Testament or didn't call their scriptures the Old Testament. That's our term for it. In fact, if you say that to a Jewish person, they'll be deeply offended by your use of that language. They simply called it the scriptures. In particular, they would often call it the Tanakh. Uh, before you cheat and look ahead, anybody know what the Tanakh stands for? Okay, cool. I, I, I hope to be giving you some new information. So it's the, it's really the like TNK. So you have the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketubim. So the Torah is the law. The law contained the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses traditionally, the first five books of the Old Testament. You know, we call it the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. So it's the first five books. And they were actually in the same order that we had them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have Navim, which is the Hebrew word for prophets. And the eight prophets as listed in sort of our oldest lists, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, First and Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. All of the minor prophets were in one book and they were arranged in the same order that we have them. So you didn't have first and second Kings broke down into two books and you didn't have first and second Isaiah. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, you, uh, you didn't have first and second Samuel and you didn't have first and second Kings. Now, a lot of times what determined what, what was in a book was how much they could put on one scroll. <laughs> so whatever you could fit on a scroll would often be considered a book. And if you couldn't fit it in one scroll, then you split it. Then you had the Ketubim, which are the writings. So the 11 books of the writings contain three of the poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Five of what were called the roles, Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And these would be read at various feast times. They were arranged in chronological order of their observance to the feasts. Does that make sense? Chronological order through the Jewish year according to the time of the feast, and then you have the three narrative or historical books there. Um, so Ezra and Nehemiah were combined, and then First and Second Chronicles combined. 
So essentially, it was the same text, just divided into 24 books instead of the 39 that we have today. So that's also really incredible. You are reading, when you read the Old Testament, the scriptures of the Jews that go back thousands of years. It's really amazing. So the oldest extant, does anybody know, again, before looking ahead, does anybody know how old are our oldest complete manuscripts? Complete. So from Genesis all the way through Malachi. Anybody without cheating? So you're going back to the Masoretes, which is the 800s or 700s, the 8th century. Um, so this is a common misconception that you'll hear Christians say, right? How old are our oldest Old Testament manuscripts in completion? The 8th century. Now, the Jews were copying these texts for thousands of years. And so we know for a fact that these are true to the originals. How do we know that? Well, because we have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are not, there's not a complete Jewish Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we have a lot of the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And those date to the 3rd and 2nd century BC. So that's really incredible. So what, what, what happened before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was people would say, well, you don't know that you're actually reading the Jewish Bible because the earliest manuscript you have is from the 8th century. And Christians were saying, no, we know that these are the scriptures. People copied them well. We have proof of that. And, uh, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and we could compare the 8th century manuscripts, 8th century AD, with the 3rd century BC manuscripts. And even though we didn't have the entire scriptures, the overlap was almost perfect. That's, that's incredible. Th those are documents separated by more than a thousand years that are almost perfectly aligned. Uh, so, and then you have in the latter half of the second century, really the term Old Testament came to be used by Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and then we find it in the third century with Origen. Um, really the word New Testament and Old Testament is kind of misleading because what that, we get the word New Testament and Old Testament through like a translation process that's kind of sad. Really what it should be is New Covenant or Old Covenant and New Covenant. Um, so as you are reading the Old Testament, you're reading the Old Covenant of God with his people. And when you read the New Testament, you're reading about the New Covenant of God with his people. Um, I think that that's really significant because God's covenant with his people is central to everything that he does, first in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Any questions on the Old Testament canon? Is, is the, are you going to talk about the Septuagint? And is, would that be three copies of that that are older than the Masoretic text? Um, yes, we have copies of the Septuagint that are older than the Masoretic text. Um, well, okay, that's sort of a tough question. Because when you're saying older than the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text is old. Right, Just our copies. manuscripts yeah. are not old. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how old our oldest Septuagint manuscript is. And are you asking complete manuscript or fragment? Or both, either? I guess uh, complete. Because okay. The, that would essentially be earlier, right? I mean. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's just tricky because you are dealing with a translation, but that's a good question. Let me let me find out. I'll see if I can look that up. Oldest LXX manuscript. And then I don't know if you want to speak to it, but something that always has intrigued me when our Bible translations going off the Masoretic versus the Septuagint. Sometimes the writers are quoting the Septuagint, but you know translating so it's different you know like when we look back yeah you know when we look at a, a, a new testament um quote from the old testament and i go back to look at it it's not like what they're saying was right that's because they're looking at yeah things from what i understand or? yeah so the majority of your new testament quotes of the old testament are based off the septuagint um more than likely like peter and john probably didn't know hebrew um, there's a good chance Paul did because he studied under Gamaliel. Um, so even like a guy like Luke probably didn't know Hebrew. Uh, so you're dealing with quotations of the Old Testament from the Septuagint, which is why things are a little bit different. Um, if I remember correctly, most English translations now are are based off the Masoretic text um, because we would, and that's why you'll find a differentiation in your Bible because we would say that it's more closely, like if you take the, if you take the Septuagint, what you're doing then is you're taking a translation of a translate, like you're creating an English translation from the Greek from the Hebrew, which is less direct than just going from English to Hebrew. So we tend to work off the Masoretic text. Now, I do think there are some older English Bibles in print. Like, I don't think Tyndale went off the Masoretic. I think it was probably off the Septuagint. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But I, I would have to verify that. Even like your Breaches Bible or, um, man, even the King James. I, I'm not sure which uh, translation that's based off. It's probably the Masoretic. But I don't remember. But you have some interesting stuff too, like um, Origen had his hexapla, which I think we talked about. So the the we're going to get into this, but what we're dealing with is a, a science called textual criticism. And what's fascinating is like we think that this is kind of a new modern science. You know, it really developed in like Germany around the time of the Enlightenment. It's kind of where it would trace its roots to. But actually, in reality, you have Origen in the third century doing text criticism. He had a giant book called the Hexapla, which I think we talked about. And in it, it had um, uh, six different translations of the Hebrew scriptures that he was comparing, uh, you know, critically studying to see which is kind of the oldest tradition for the text here. So that's really, really incredible. All right, I get so sidetracked, Rick. I don't even remember what your I'm original sorry. question was. And was that helpful, my it answer? Was, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, it's just more confidence that God's word is not altered or changed or no matter what evidence comes up. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and we're going to get into that more. This is really incredible stuff because you'll you'll hear Christianity attacked with this line that like, you know, you're in fact, your husband was just telling me he had a conversation with some Mormons 
you know, this week. And they were saying, well, yeah, the English Bible is like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And who knows whether it's even the real thing anymore. And that those are just lies. Like people, I mean, I don't think people say them in an attempt to lie. They're just deceived. They don't understand uh, how reliable this text is. So let's move on a little bit further. When it comes to the New Testament canon, so the, the major criteria for determining whether a book belonged in the New Testament was this idea of apostolicity. Uh, I can't say that word very well. Apostolicity. I don't know why that's so hard. So uh, like the Old Testament, as these books were being written, they were collected by people. They knew they, they were the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, or the teachings of Jesus through the apostles. And they were preserved by local churches. Um, and they were passed down from generation to generation. They were used in the process of, of worship. And so because they were important, they were copied again and again and again. And they were copied carefully. Uh, Christians knew from the very beginning that these were going to be books that were important for the church to understand how to follow Jesus. So the formation of the canon was a process. Like I know I gave you that date uh, of the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. But again, the Council of Carthage was only just affirming what everybody already knew. And this was a process that took hundreds of years uh, and, and was taking place all throughout the Roman Empire. So that's another really important thing is that it wasn't like this was a mandate from the central office that then went out. This was taking place all over in really independent communities of Christ all around uh, the Mediterranean, the, uh, you know, Israel, Egypt, uh, Rome. And, and, and by the time the Council of Carthage came together, it was just this is what everybody everywhere agrees upon. And so let's just give our official stamp of approval to it. So you had this point, local canons were the basis for comparison. And out of them eventually emerged the general canon, which exists in Christendom today. So what, what that means is like, you might have, um, let's just make up some stuff. I'm making up some stuff. You might have an Antioch that uh, they have 29 books. And you might have in um, Alexandria that they have 28 books. Well, what are all of the books that everybody agrees upon, right? This was part of the way of saying that might be a locally important document that you're circulating there, but what are the ones that we all agree on? Now, that's not the only criteria, but that's one of them, that we could compare these things together, okay? Uh, I just have a note in here. Some of the Eastern churches have a New Testament that's a little bit smaller than our New Testament, but it's not really relevant for us today. So Christians, of course, also believe that God was operative in a providential way to preserve these texts and to pass them down. I mean, what is our greatest confidence that the Bible that we have is God's word? The sovereign will of God himself. Um, we trust that God wanted his people to know his revelation to them. So in a little bit more detail, first uh, and foremost, the writings of the apostles were considered authoritative almost unquestionably. unquestioningly. That's kind of an interesting idea because like you have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're pretty sure that there's at least a, a third letter to the church in Corinth, maybe a fourth letter to the church in Corinth. So, um, or Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. What do we do with those? Um, you know, either the church had them and rejected them as authoritative or they were lost very quickly. 
Um, but the point is that if an apostle wrote a letter or wrote a gospel or wrote something, the church pretty much unquestionably said, because it came from an apostle, it's authoritative. So you actually have that implicit in Scripture in Matthew 28 and John 14, 26. Um, we, we should look at these real quick. The Matthew 28 text is obvious. It's the Great Commission. Starting in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what does Jesus do? He basically gives it to them. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus passes on his authority to the apostles, to the disciples. He commands them to teach. Therefore, the teaching of the apostles was considered authoritative because it came from Christ. Does that progression make sense? And then the other one is John 14, 6. Um, this is probably one you're familiar with as well. So Jesus, wait, it's 26, sorry. Um, so Jesus says to his disciples in this closed upper room discourse, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the apostles, the disciples, were not passing on just some things that they made up. They were passing on what the Holy Spirit called to their remembrance to give to the church. Okay. So there are some expect, uh, exceptions, which we kind of already mentioned. You know, 1 Corinthians 5.9 speaks of a previous letter from Paul. Colossians 4.16 speaks of a letter to the Laodiceans. Um, Polycarp in the middle of the second century refers to numerous letters by Paul to the church in Philippi. So for whatever reason, we don't have those. Does that bother anybody? I'd like to read them for them. <laughs> If they were discovered today, do you think they should go into the Bible? If it can be proven it was written by Paul, yes. You think so? Oh, yeah. I would actually, I would, I would say no, and here's why. The reason would be, um, and, and again, I would be all for reading them. I would love to do that. I think it would be fascinating. But I would say no, and the reason why is because my perspective on the sovereignty of God and his goodness to his people leads me to believe that early on he gave to all of his people everything that they needed. So I would be of the position that, like, I really wouldn't want to insert Third Corinthians into my Bible. I would read it. Maybe it's an appendix to something like that. Um, but I would just, I, I wouldn't be able to get away from the question, like, did 6th century Christians then not have all of God's word revealed to them? Um, and I don't think the answer to that question really matters all that much. But um, so this is kind of interesting. If you go down a little further in, in your notes, I think you have this. Uh, point five there. Uh, no, sorry. Where did it go? Shoot. Oh, sorry. It's it's in my notes on point three. Uh, by the end of the second century, Irenaeus considered apostolic authority essential. In other words, it was you couldn't have a New Testament book included in the canon unless there was some apostolic connection there. 
okay? Whether it was like Luke who traveled with Paul, something like that. But he believed that so strongly that he essentially gave to books that didn't have apostolic authority, apostolic authority. So Luke was not technically an apostle, but Irenaeus would say he was because he wrote scripture. <laughs> it's sort of a circular argument if, if you get what I'm saying. Um, so then you have things like Paul quoting Luke 10, 7 in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, and he calls it scripture. So that's interesting. Paul in his letter to Timothy quotes Luke and says it's scripture. But isn't Luke quoting the Old Testament? Yes, but it's word for word the Greek. In other words, Paul's quotation there lines up more with Luke than it does with the Old Testament. Could not be because he's reading from the Septuagint? Possibly. That's possible. Um... You have Peter equating Paul's writings with the other scriptures. That's 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. So that's amazing, this idea that the apostles knew that one another were writing scripture. Um, then you have... Uh, so so if, if, if it needed an apostolic origin, then you've got in there Matthew, John, Romans through Philemon, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st through 3rd John, and Revelation. Would Paul be considered an apostle? I think, yes, you would go to 1st Corinthians 15, 8. He says, uh, as one untimely born, Christ also appeared to me. I think what he's saying is that he belongs to that apostolic 12, even though he wasn't brought into that group until later, as one untimely born. Then you have the other books. So what do we do with like Hebrews? Do we know who the author of Hebrews is? No, it's assumed that it was written by Paul, um, but it was accepted as divinely inspired so early that the church knew regardless of the author, it belonged in the scriptures. Why? Well, because they evaluated it based on its intrinsic quality. Um, so we looked at like the Didache. Why not include the Didache? Well, you can read the Didache and it sort of excludes itself just from its reading. That would be the intrinsic quality. Mark was obviously a close friend of Peter, so that's why he gets considered scripture. Luke, a close friend of Paul, and then Jude was the brother of Jesus. So how did some of those outliers get in? Well, they had very close connections to the apostles. As early as AD 90, then, you have Clement of Rome writing with other Christians, telling them to read the letters of Paul, saying, with true inspiration, he charged you in the Spirit. So the idea of the inspiration of Scripture behind the human authors already present in 90 AD with the New Testament text. That was already present in the Old Testament text, obviously. But, um, you know, that begins to be applied to Paul as early as 90 AD before the close of the first century. That's amazing. And then, of course, again, we're full circle here. The real important question, does the book included in the canon have divine authorship? My sheep hear my voice. We should expect that as we read scripture, we will know, like, this is the revelation of God. Um, So even more important than the apostolicity of the text is the divine authority of the text. We're going to have to stop there. Any questions, though, on that before we wrap up? 
I got two comments if you want. Yeah, please. Regarding the letter written to the Laodiceans and you know a little nuance on our agreement whether it should be in the canon. One, Paul commands us to read the letter to the Laodiceans. Oh, so there's a sense which you have to read it, like almost if it showed up and we can confirm it. Sure, thing. that's interesting. You should read it because it's scripture. Um, of Paul saying you should read it, that means it's authoritative, whether it's in the canon. But then uh, an argument good point. canon to say that we have everything we need. Well, I would expect a letter to show up would not include anything more that I was lacking. Oftentimes I read the Bible saying the same thing over and over. Right. Letters, I mean, I feel like Colossians, Ephesians, almost the same. So I would just say it'd be just another compliment rather than say I was lacking this knowledge throughout my whole Sure, that's a good point. So uh, hopefully you can hear that on the recording, that it would be a compliment to what's already there, what's already been revealed. Yeah, and I guess you could also make the argument, too, that like God has progressive revelation. That's part of his purposes. Um, you know, I do take kind of the ending to Revelation as sort of like an exclamation point on all of Scripture. I know that it is referring particularly to Revelation, but I think it's interesting that the church has placed that book last. In other words, don't add to this book anymore. I know that it is referring specifically to Revelation, but I think it's important that it comes at the end of all of, of what we have in the canon. But but to your point, maybe God knows that you know 2,000 years later, there's some additional uh, book that needs to be discovered for our benefit to help us through a particular time in history. I'm open and, to and that, that idea. that comment about Revelation also goes to a difference where I don't think, I think Revelation is written, you know, and it's not the last book right. necessarily. And also, I'm not just saying that, you know, there's a lot of old books that I've discovered which has changed my mind on this where they are attributing it to early church or early writings are attributing it to early. So, you know, there's, there is that nuance where, you know, First John could be written way after Revelation. Sure, it's possible. A lot of people it's possible, and, and, and then we do have to acknowledge that there is some theological drive to make that assertion so that that passage at the end of Revelation ends at the end of the Bible. Does that make sense? Well, Don't add. I just say it, it's talking about the revelation given. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. And that's what I'm saying is, is like there's some theological reason to conclude that this was the last book so that we can put it last so that we can say it's closed, right? And that's not that's not a good reason. If the date no. is clearly perceived to be earlier, then it should be earlier. But Deuteronomy also says do not add anything. Sure. If we take that hermeneutic, it's, well, that, that's the end of the Bible. Uh, right. All right. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, this is fun. I, again, hopefully this is helpful, and uh, we'll get into this even more next week. Um, just so you guys know, we won't meet the week after Christmas. Uh, I'll just have too much going on that week to get it, get it done. Um, all right, blessings. Thank you.